Lord is so worthy of all of us. I mean, all of us. I mean, like getting all of us, you know, have a seat, please. Like I am, I mean, when you think about a thankful heart and a, and a thankful prayer and, uh, you know, being willing to, to dance before the Lord as David did and says, oh, I can be more undignified than this. You think this is bad. I can throw down a jig that you would be like, whoa. You know, like, I mean, he is, um, he is so worthy of all of us. You know what I'm saying? Like giving him all of me. And um, I hope that's your heartbeat this morning. I hope that uh, that you have uh, you have seen and heard and tasted and seen that that God is good by by heaven's standards and uh, and that his love, man, his love is beyond comparison um, and his mercy, his mercy and compassion just reigns. Um, this week, I have endeavored to uh, look at a passage um, that uh, that many uh, struggle with. Um, you know, one of the things that I find as I as I grow in my relationship with the Lord and I grow as the Spirit imparts His Word uh, to us or to me um, is that the more I know, the more I feel that I I know. You know, like <laughs> the more I I know Him, the more I feel I I there's so much more that I don't know about Him because He is so limitless and 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 uh, Paul often refers to in, in the Scriptures about the mysteries of faith and uh and all the things i mean if we knew what god knew he wouldn't be god and he's his uh his ways are not our way his thoughts are not our thoughts and uh, and yet and yet by his word and through his spirit he longs to impart himself to us he longs to uh to grant us understanding and insight and um and man i'm so thankful this week i had the privilege of uh reading through one of charles spurgeon's um uh sermons and uh and it was on Verse 13 of this passage and, and, uh, and he, he opens up with the majority of his, his time just, just declaring his ignorance. Um, and I just want to, I want to do the same. Like, I just want to say, like, I'm so humbled at, uh, before God's word to, to even think that I would have anything to offer, uh, simply as just trying to instruct in his, in his word. It just, it, it, the gravity of it, like, yeah, it humbles me, but at times I'm like, man, I can't do this. And the truth is I can't, but he can. And, you know, and, uh, and he longs to use us in that endeavor. So if you've ever felt like Moses at the burning bush going, um, you know, I think you got the wrong guy. Um, if you relate to that, um, you know, you're in good company. Um, because it's, 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 it's he who wills and works according to his good pleasure. Like it's, it's God that's moving and acting in us. And he does glorious things through frail and, uh, yielded vessels. Um, but, um, Spurgeon went on to say that he, he, uh, he just acknowledges that there, if anybody has, says they have a grasp on these, on the text that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, uh, run. Um, because there's, there's so much, there's so much here that, um, that is, that is beyond us. Um, but, uh, but we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. We're called to, 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 to have our trust and confidence and faith in Him and allow His Word to speak to us. And we are, we are the ones that are in the yielded mode in that. So, uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, if, if Christ is Lord of our lives, and I hope He is, um, that, that His Word is, is Lord too, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we submit to His Word. And what it says, um, does, it's irrelevant if it, if it, if it doesn't even compute. Uh, we, we surrender to it and trust God for the understanding. 
Because um, think about it, uh, if, 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 um, if you had to get understanding before you walked it out, how would that be faith? You know, and often when we walk by faith is when the understanding comes. On the other. You ever notice that? That you walk in faith in a circumstance, trusting God, and, uh, and the understanding seems to come on the other side of the storm, on the other side of the circumstances. And, uh, and so uh, if you turn with me to chapter 9 of uh, this glorious letter to the believers in Rome, um, Paul has, uh, has, has again um, kind of uh, anticipated a question. Um, he, has, uh, he has journeyed, uh, from our perspective, through eight chapters of uh, helping us to understand this righteousness, this perfect righteousness that's been imputed to our spiritual account, that's been credited to our spiritual account. And now we stand in the righteousness of Christ simply by the grace of God. Uh, not, not in anything that we've done, not in anything that we've merited or earned. Uh, we can't work it off. It is a gift that's been given to us. It's been freely given, though it was anything but free. Uh, it cost Christ everything. And so what he's helped us understand, and, and he's come to this incredible uh, crescendo at the end, is that we're more than conquerors, we're loved beyond our wildest dreams, that, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that God has deposited his spirit in us so that we might be clothed with power from on high in order to walk out this righteous life. Like we don't even have, we don't have the gumption, we don't have the resolve, the desire, we don't have the, the if it wasn't for God's spirit, we couldn't, there's no way we could walk out this Christian life. And so God has, God is the author of salvation. He is the, he's the finishing factor and he is the one that will finish our salvation and uh, to him be all the glory, honor and praise. So um, one of the things that we often see as folks read through this letter is they get to this point and uh, it almost seems to have this this um this segue or this uh this this major turn or shift and it really isn't if we understand the context and so most often people look at the end of you know at Romans chapter 8 verse 39 and they think okay well it kind of picks up again in Romans 12 verse 1 and i don't know what this 9 through 11 is all about but it's hard to understand and the truth is is that god has has an awesome thing to impart to us here, a truth, a doctrine, that uh, a teaching that is that we're so desperate to understand because it puts us in the ideal posture of being poor in spirit, of being humbled before this awesome God that has done something for us in Christ that we'll never get our minds and hearts around. Does that make sense? The answer to that is no. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's, it's the chasm of the, the magnitude, the gravity of what God has done for us in Christ is just magnificent. And, 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 uh, so we, we seek to walk with the Spirit's help up this mountain, not try to circumvent it, not to go around it, but to, but to climb this mountain, hoping that God will continue to do His faithful work to impart understanding to this. So, one of the things that Paul does, and he does often, is he anticipates the, um, the reader's response. And so he'll ask questions that he anticipates them asking after he has given some teaching or, 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 uh, or, or what we understand to be the, the, the scriptures or the text. And so what you're saying, like, like what the, what his readers, what Paul speculates that his readers might be saying at the end of chapter eight is this. So what you're saying is when God calls someone, he always completes the work in them. Then what about 
the Israelites. God came to them and called them, but most Jews have rejected Jesus as the Christ. And goes on to continue that thought because, you know, the, the ultimate question that's being asked is, is God's word faithful? Is God's promises true? So he goes on, and, and, and this is really what he's after, because you, you can imagine his audience saying this then. If God's promises is that the descendants of Abraham would be his people, yet the majority re- rejected Jesus as their Messiah, does that mean that God's word, strength, and grace has failed? This is the question that is being asked. Has God's promises failed? If the Jews have rejected and not seen his his provision, his ultimate, the fruition of all the prophets. And all, I mean, everything we saw in the old co- covenant finds its yes in Jesus, finds its fi- the promise realized is Christ himself. And yet when God incarnates himself and everything that he has declared through his through the covenant and he brings it to the earth in, in, in Emmanuel, um, they they rejected him. And so that's the question that we're going to look at in these first 13 verses this morning. Um, hopefully you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 9 at this point. Um, if, you, uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, please bring them. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seat backs uh, underneath the seats in front of you. Please utilize those. And, and we, would, we would be honored to give you a Bible. Please come and see myself or any other, anybody else and we'll, we'll get you a Bible. We want you to have God's word. So follow with me as we read through the first 13 verses of Romans 9. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not, and this is where Paul answers the question that we put forward this morning, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. He is quoting from Genesis 21.12. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our father, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved but Esau I hated 
So what do we learn from Jewish unbelief? Uh, as we look at this passage and we look at uh, the Jewish nation, uh, those that are blood descendants of Abraham and their response to the gospel uh, and to the person of Christ, what do we learn? Well, let's pick up. I'm going to look, break this into, th- into four sections. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3, verses 4 and 5, verses 6 to 8, and then verses 9 to 13. And, uh, and Lord willing, uh, with the Spirit's help, we'll, uh, we'll discover something wonderful. So it says in verses 1 to 3, Paul says, I am speaking the truth. Do you remember um, as Jesus would teach, he would see verily, verily, I say to you, like like uh, th- these were statements where, listen, I-, I want you to know that this is fact. This is, th- you know, like, man, I pro- like he wouldn't use those words, but I promise you, like um, like he is he is emphatically saying in verse one what he is trying to declare in verse two. He is he is trying to through three different statements to say, man, I am telling you the truth. God knows is what he's saying here. God knows I'm telling you the truth. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, like God's spirit, God's spirit sanctifies our conscience. And now he is saying that God's spirit, like if God were to tell you himself, I am telling you the truth about what this unceasing anguish that's in my heart, this sorrow that I feel. And he goes on to say, after he says, believe me, for God knows it's true. He says this, this is what he's talking about, that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. What is he talking about? He, he is, he's going now to unpack this for us, that he is burdened for his countrymen. He is burdened for his race. He is burdened for those that are lost. And his, his heart is broken unceasingly. He is in anguish and great sorrow. And he says this, for I could wish... now. I have to pause here because it's important that I point this out. The reason Paul says I could wish is because he's just told us in chapter eight that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. And uh, so he is he has shown us through a litany of conversation and uh, and 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 text that that we cannot be separated from Christ, that, that we have we have an eternal security because Christ finished the work and has is imparted his righteousness to us. And so he it's so important that we understand that he says, I could wish this I could, but it's not possible for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Man, hopefully we hear the gravity of this statement because Paul, in countless circumstances, has said, I would give my life for you. I would give my life for you. But he was talking about his physical life. Here, the statement has has massive implications. And it's not that Paul is making this statement in some state of ignorance about what he is saying. I mean, Paul is saying that I would give my eternal relationship with God if it meant that my that my countrymen would come to know Christ. That's a massive statement that that has great significance. And Paul gets it. You hear in this passage that Paul has a deep love for his people and knows the joy of knowing and serving Christ. So he's not saying that without that perspective. 
But Paul is also deeply acquainted with the consequences of rejecting God's grace and his offer of salvation. He knows who he was prior to Acts chapter 9. He knows what he was before walking the road to Damascus and the scales falling from his eyes. Paul makes a profound statement that he would forfeit his righteous standing with God through Christ. Everything that has been discussed for eight chapters in God's redemptive plan, in God's authorship of rescuing humanity, if it meant his brothers and sisters were saved. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever had the spirit stir in you such a burden for the lost that you would, you would, you would want that for others to that point of sacrifice? Because he's not just talking about giving his time or his talent or his days or his ways or his, or his physical life. He's saying, I would forfeit my eternal salvation if it meant they would be saved. Well, some thoughts that, that in, in what this statement is saying. Paul truly understood the importance of this statement. That's one thing we can, we can clearly understand or, or draw uh, is that Paul understood what he was saying here. Number two, genuine love gives and it is sacrificial like paul is is uh is depicting what agape love looks like what god's love looks like this is exactly what christ did for us paul was a true follower and what i mean by that is this if you think about what did christ do for us he literally experienced temporarily experienced because sin could not hold him but he temporarily experienced separation from from the author of life he experienced separation from God so that we would not have to. And so what is Paul like declaring in this moment is that he has the heart of Christ. It's not something that he has done, but the spirit has done in him. And now he is declaring that. And isn't that man, isn't that what we want? I mean, have you have you prayed that dangerous prayer? God, give me a burden for those that don't know you. Lord, give your heart to me. So that I might, because Paul declares that he is passionate and is sacrificial and shares the heart of Christ when it comes to the salvation of those in his, his race or um, in his culture. We too, number four, we, sh- we too should have a sacrificial heart for those who are not following Christ. I love what Paul says in Acts twenty twenty four. This is Sheba's life verse, by the way. It says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And, and truly, the statement that he's just made is way more profound than that. Because he's talking about giving his life here, and he's talked about that over and over again. But here he is declaring that he is willing to, to give up his very uh, his relationship with the Lord so that others might have that. The other thing we see in this is that Paul had feelings. So often we think that Paul is, because of his, his teachings, is dogmatic or cold or callous. Man, this was a man that loved deeply, loved the church deeply, and even loved those that didn't know Christ deeply. Have you ever shared Paul's sentiments for others? Have you ever had family members? Have you ever had those knocking at, at, uh, at death's door and you're just begging the Lord and uh, you'd be willing to sacrifice your own so that they might have or know? And, and, and really, it, I think this really, for me, continues to um, just depict the gravity of the gospel and the importance of, of just being yielded to the Father so that he might use me for that same mission that Jesus started and wants to finish through us as the church. 
So through the next three chapters are incredible challenging, though they're incredibly challenging intellectually, they are not void of emotion or conviction because we see this in the heart of the instrument that God used to convey in Paul. The, the Jewish rejection of their Messiah is astonishing because they were given such, such great advantages that should have prepared them and directed them to Jesus as their promised Messiah. I mean, look, look at all of the advantages as we'll look at here in these next two verses that the Jewish people were given in order that they might be able to identify the Savior, the Lord. As he showed up and yet when he showed up embodying, it says in Hebrews chapter one, it says he's the exact representation of the father. If you've seen Jesus, Jesus said to, to Philip, if you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And so here um, it's uh, it's shocking that uh, that the, the, the Jewish people in the in the in the, the contemporaries of, of, of Jesus did not recognize him as the Messiah. Yet every single promise, every single prophecy, every ceremony, every every everything that God had given to the Jewish people was meant for them to to acknowledge and to receive. And yet the scriptures tell us that they're that, that the God of this world. Speaking of the enemy has veiled their eyes. And um, and so verses four and five uh, continue by saying this. They are the Israelites speaking of his kinsmen, those that he loved and would give his life for his eternal life for. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, uh, the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God overall blessed forever. Amen. So I quickly want to run through this. You know, Paul in a very concise way kind of does a, an Old Testament survey here and just kind of, you know, runs through this, the, the, all of the, the, uh, all of the advantages, all of the gifts that God gave to the, to the Jewish people. And he starts with the adoption. In Exodus chapter four, verse 22, it says this, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And so I, I don't know if you, if you remember this, but like Jesus, when the, the disciples said, teach us to pray in Luke chapter 11, um, Jesus starts off with saying, our father, which he got massive like repercussions. I mean, they called him a blasphemer because he called God father. And yet that's a concept that is woven throughout all of the Old Testament given to the Jewish people. And Jesus was there embodying the truth that we are, we are, that they are the adoption, the sons of God. Number two says the divine glory or the glory. And basically this is the, this is the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God's presence. Like God, God like brought his presence among them. Let's, let's look what that might look like. So practically, we see that in the tabernacle. In Exodus 29, 45, it says, I will dwell, God says, among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. Very practically, that was done as he uh, brought his glory upon the tabernacle. Prior to this, we saw it in a cloud and a pillar of fire. Uh, we saw it on the top of Mount Sinai as, as God came down uh, to bring his people, his his, his guidance, his law. And then we see it uh, with the temple in 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God 
literally brought his presence, his glory um, to the Israel. And then ultimately, ultimately and most profoundly, his son. In John 1, verses 14, it's, uh, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus was like the incarnate glory of God. And, uh, and it was brought to the Jewish nation. Uh, it continues, number three, with the covenants. Uh, we see in Genesis 15 that there was a covenant established with, uh, with Abraham that, that I will bless you and make you a great nation. Um, and then uh, to Moses in Exodus 24, specifically verse 8. If you look at verse 8, you see where, where, where God establishes the covenant with Moses. Uh, with David in 2 Samuel 23. Um, verse five, if you want to get real specific, we see where, where God has, has given this, this covenant with, with these men specifically. And all these covenants were meant to point to the Messiah, as the prophets' words were too, to point to the culmination of God's promise realized in the Savior of the world in Jesus Christ. And yet, they rejected Him. God established relationship and promise and promises and fulfilled them in Jesus. Number four, um, they received, they, in the receiving of the law, God gave them a law, the statutes, his, his divine ordinances. In Deuteronomy 4, 8, it says, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as, as all this law that I have set before you today? God saw this as a way of imparting himself and giving, giving, giving them every opportunity to, to see who he was. The law points to our inability to measure up to God's glory and that it also points to our desperate need of a savior. It shows us where we fall short. Goes on to talk about the temple worship and uh, ESV says the worship, the temple worship. You know, in the temple worship, one of the things we see is the need of shed blood. We, we see that, uh, we also see the, the importance of holiness. And, uh, and how we, we don't have any holiness. We can't approach this holy other God. And, uh, and that we are in desperate need of someone to, to anoint us, to, uh, to quench our sinful state. And, uh, the holy, the, the worship and the temple sacrifices, these things were given as indicators and advantages. And, ver- and, and number six, we see, uh, the sixth thing we see is the promises and the prophets. All the promises, all the declarations, all the, the words that were given uh, so that they would understand the wonder of God's love realized in Christ Jesus. And, uh, and then the, pro, the, the uh, patriarchs. And this, this, uh, this includes folks like Samuel uh, and, and Joseph and others uh, beyond uh, Moses and, and Abraham and David um, that they were given that continued to point to Christ um, hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before his appointed time. And then finally, most specifically, most profoundly, the Christ himself, the anointed one, Israel's Messiah. God specifically gave Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was given to the Jewish people initially. And uh, so with all these vantages, why, why did they reject Jesus, Paul puts this hypothetical question out there and, and then begins to answer it. Well, obvious, the obvious answer that Paul puts forward in verse 6 is, it was not because God failed to communicate. Doesn't that make sense? 
It's not because God uh, failed to give them every resource, every opportunity, every detail. Um, all of it was depicted in one way, shape, or form. And, uh, and we see that in verses 6 through 8. He goes on to say this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Again, that's Genesis twenty-one, twelve that Paul's quoting. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. So just a, a little uh, Jewish history. Um, one of the things we, we see is Abraham was living in the land of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans. Um, he was 75 years of age, um, and God told him, go, I'm, I have a place for you, uh, journey to this place, a land that I'm going to give you. Uh, I'm going to make your descendants as, as many as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And, uh, and Abraham, uh, after a period of time, journeys with his, his dad, uh, with his nephew Lot and his wife Sarai, his name was it was Abram at the time, and they moved from from Ur in the Chaldeans, Mesopotamia, um, and they make their way Aram. They make their way up to um, uh, to um, to Haran, and uh, and stay there for a short period of time. And uh, afterwards, he, he he's reminded of what God promised him and told him to do, which was to journey down to the the, the land of Canaan. And so uh, he journeys down there, and during that time, uh, God has promised him a son. And um, and so at the age of 86, uh, now let's keep in mind, it's been 11 years, 11 years since God gave the promise. Sarah comes up with a brainstorm, and Abraham's all in. And the idea is to take her Egyptian maidservant, and that Abraham is to take her as his as another wife, and uh, and that God's promise might be come to fruition through Hagar. And um, and Abraham says, oh, good idea. Let's give that a shot as if God's not going to fulfill his promise. And um, and this causes a ton of conflict within their home. And it, we, we're still feeling the conflict today. Um, that's where Ishmael is born. Uh, when Abraham was 86, Ishmael was born. And uh, it wasn't until Abraham was 99 that God comes to him and reminds him of his promise, that he was going to give him a promised child and through through his offspring, uh, the promised child Isaac, uh, that you're that this is going to be how I'm going to accomplish my purpose and, and how I'm going to bless you and bring a nation from you, and so that was um, he was 99, Sarah was 89, and so at the age of 100, Sarah being 90, they gave birth to Isaac, and uh, this was a son of promise. And part of what this text is telling us is is that Abraham had an older son, his name was Ishmael, but he was not the son of promise. And it was by God's selection, God's election, God's choice that he chose to to bring about his promise and uh, fulfill his his covenant through through Isaac. But also we find out later that not all the children of Abraham, meaning his his descendants through blood, are children of Abraham from God's perspective. The children of Abraham are the ones that share Abraham's faith. So we too become partakers of God's promises as those that share Abraham's faith. And, and as, and because of that, by God's, by God's grace, we are children of Abraham. But here he's talking about not all descendants of Abraham are descendants of the promise. Only those 
that came through Isaac. And so we see that in verse 20, chapter 20, 21. And so it says in verse 8, that means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted by God as offspring. So some who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not children of the promise. It, I will bless you and make you a nation. This was his promise. And so by God's... And see, and it breaks cultural norms because Ishmael would have been the firstborn son. And in, in cultural custom, that would, he would have been the one that would have received the inheritance. He would have received the, the first blessing. And by God's selection, just because he defies all all logic, all cultural, um, you know, he, he has his own way, his own will. And his will will prevail. He is sovereign. And it's always what's best, always what's best. Paul reinforces his point again in this latter portion of the text. He says this, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, speaking of when Abraham was 99, Sarah 89, I will return and Sarah will have a son, speaking of Isaac. And not only so, but who, but also when Rebecca, who is Isaac's future, we wind a little forward. Um, uh, uh, Isaac has gotten a, a wife from uh, Abraham's family. Uh, they, he sent a servant back to get a wife for Abraham. I mean, for his son Isaac. And Rebecca is that wife. And uh, 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 Rebecca was uh, 40 years old. Isaac was 60 before they had Jacob and Esau. Um, and so Rebecca had conceived children by one man, speaking of therefore our forefather Isaac. But both were descendants. Think about this. Both were descendants of Abraham and Sarah. Yet only one inherited the promise because of God's ordained selection or election. God chose not the older son in Esau. He chose, he chose, he chose Jacob. And, uh, and this is by God's appointment. This is by God's choice. He, he, and, and, and the thing is, we have to remember, like, we're going to get to this next week as Nathan brings the next portion of this passage. But if you look at verses 15 and 16, we have to understand that, that it's by God's compassion and mercy that we're, we're extended anything in the area of grace or his kindness. See, we're all born on a road that it's destined for destruction and separation from God. We're all born in that condition. And it's by God's mercy. It's by God's, it's by God's choice that He rescues and reconciles us. You see, we're told that He first loved us. He first chose us. That we were in a posture that we would have never, ever, ever chose Him. But that He first extended His, His hand of mercy. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated His very own love for us. While we were yet sinners and Christ died for us we were told earlier in romans that none are righteous not one none of us would ever have turned to god if it wasn't for god's you know i mean he's the one that's running and rescuing us and uh and we are the ones that that are that should be filled like because we live in this mindset this entitlement culture that thinks that we deserve salvation like i mean that that is that is that is farce there, there's nothing about God's grace that we deserve. There's nothing about God's grace that we have earned. There's, we don't deserve anything. I mean, if anything, we deserve God's wrath. That's what we deserve. And most of us would cringe at that statement and go, I don't, I don't deserve. 
But we're born in that status, in that circumstance. And it's God's mercy, it's God's kindness, it's God's, it's God's finishing work. It's, it's his, it's his choice to rescue and ransom. Should that not create and cultivate in us a heart of worship? Sure, I believe we, we respond to that in some really insignificant way. But if God would not impart himself, if God would not woo us and draw us, if God did not declare his love for us, if God didn't, didn't, uh, didn't declare his mission to, to ransom and rescue us, we wouldn't have a chance. There would, there's no way we would get there on our own. Couldn't happen. Nobody would merit God's grace. Nobody would merit God's salvation. It's because Christ, it's because God purposed in Christ and he spent millenniums like thousands of years and using all the things we just discussed, he used all of that in order to, to, to make himself known, to reveal himself, and then he brought it all to fruition in Christ. And then he opens our minds. <laughs> he opens our minds. And, uh, I mean, we just talked about it in the last part of chapter 8. It's God who calls. It's God who ransoms and glorifies. It's God who sanctifies. Like, man, it just... It should create such a, a state of gratitude in us to know that God has done this and we've done nothing to merit it. If anything, we have done everything to not merit it. And yet God did it anyway. And that's a, that's an awesome thing. Verse 10, and not also, not, not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, just in case we think that those twins came from, from Isaac, um, though they were not yet born. Now, here's this is so important as we wrap up here. Though they were not yet born, they hadn't they hadn't took and, taken a breath. They hadn't done anything right or wrong. Though they were not yet born and had doth, done nothing either good or bad. The point here is is that God's mercy is not um, is not determined by our actions. And and aren't you glad? <laughs> I know that I'm forever thankful for that. That God's mercy is 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 just it's it's who He is. It's 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 what He's chosen to do, and you only know Him because of His mercy. Like that that's that's the truth when we nail it down, because of His sovereignty, and and we have just surrendered to that reality that God has really given us insight to. And so it had nothing to do with, with their, with their goodness or bad before they were yet born in order that God's purpose of election, another way to understand that is selection or choice. The, the word in the Greek, uh, literally means, um, to choose or to pull out. And if you think through like pull out, what an awesome understanding that helps us with. But, but, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, God is, God is choosing God is appointing, God is all the way down so that he would bring about his, his son at the perfect time in the perfect way so that salvation might come to humanity. Not because of works, just to reinforce that, not because of anything that we've done. And in fact, not because of anything that we haven't done, simply because of his mercy, simply because of his character and his grace and his posture. I mean, this, he's just declaring who he is. And yet, in the midst of his redemptive work, he never diminishes his justice. He pours out all that wrath on his son. 
intentionally. Like Jesus willingly ran to the cross. We can't miss that. That Jesus, you know, pushed Peter out of the way, pushed the enemy out of the way. He, I mean, he, it's as if he ran to it and embraced it. I love that, that part in the Passion of the Christ where he gets to his cross and he literally puts his arms around it. Because God, Jesus ran to the cross in order to rescue humanity. And, uh, and this was God's expression of mercy. But it had nothing to do with our deserving or warranting or our actions. None of us, none of us will ever stand before God in any mode and, and, and feel like we, we earned any aspect of our salvation. The finishing work that Christ in making us righteous is a work that God has done, is doing, and will finish. And uh, praise be to God. Not because of works, but because of him. Simply because of him. God, who calls, she was told, simply because of God. And he's the one, as we talked about earlier, that does the calling. She was told, now she being Rebecca, uh, Isaac's wife, was told when she had conceived the babies and before they were born, she was told the older will serve the younger. In other words, Esau will serve Jacob. God said that before they took their first breath. Uh, in Jeremiah 1.35, it says, I knew you before you were in your mother's womb, and I purposed you to be a prophet to the nations. Like God, God, God knows our end from our beginning. He knows he is in all time, at all time. And then he makes this statement from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And this, this statement has caused so much friction, so much division, so much unrest, so much... Um, struggle and debate among the church, among those that, uh, scholars and, 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 and really there's, there's a simple answer if we look at all of scripture to what, what is being said here. Now, if you go to Malachi chapter one and you read the context, it's verses one to five, and surely that Edom, which was the descendants of Esau, surely Edom was a rebellious nation. They were a nation that were opposed to God and, uh, and God had a, um, a, a, a posture of discipline towards them. And he said, they said, oh, we'll just rebuild what's been destroyed. And God says, I will tear it down again. So we, we understand God's posture here, but we must understand that if while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in order to demonstrate our love for his love for us. And if, if Jesus says this, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And we see in the, in that passage that he sends the sun and the rain even on the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous. Then we have to use all of scripture to qualify what is being stated here. And let me say what it's not saying. What it's not saying is, is that, um, that I love Jacob and I loved Esau, um, less. That is an, that's an understatement to what it's really, really saying. And in order to understand this, we must look at a passage, that, a statement that Jesus made. And it would, it's a profound statement because Jesus over and over again said, in order to fulfill the law and the prophets, we must love God with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul, and we must love our neighbor as ourself. Okay? And then Jesus, in, in Luke 14, verse 26, he makes this bold statement. He says, you're not worthy to follow me unless you hate your family. Okay, anybody been through this passage? You know what I'm talking about? Your mother, your father, you know, on and on. And, and, uh, and in order for us to, to take that kind of, because there has been a lot of things that have been done 
not in Jesus' name, just, just taking that verse out of context. But what he was saying there is, is that, is that God gets preference in this relationships. In these relationship, God gets ultimate preference so that if you were to compare the love that we're to have for God to the love that we're to have for others, it would in contrast appear as hate. And it doesn't mean just simply love less. It means that it is preference. That God, as we talk here about selection, election, that God has chosen Esau, I mean Jacob, and not Esau. That it is, it is preference. Because here's the danger. Uh, when we talk about like God is jealous for you, we, the scriptures tell us that. Uh, Jim always points out that the word there is zealous. It's the same, same, same word. We understand that, that God in his perfection has the ability to be zealous for us, to be, to be jealous for us, and he does that without compromising his perfection uh, and his character. But we, we in our... So my, my point in this is that sometimes we're jealous and it's not a righteous thing, and it doesn't lead to righteous action. Uh, in this case, God has the ability in his understanding of selection. He, he, like, if we were to say, um, God, like, if we were to hate, it's, it's absolutely destructive. Uh, but that's not in the, that's not in the character of God. So we must understand that what is being said here is that his preference, his selection, his election was for, was for Jacob over Esau. And, you know, do, do I understand that? No. Do I have to understand that to continue to trust God and believe him as the sovereign over my life? Absolutely not. I, I, I don't have to understand it. But I, to trust him, yes, I will. I always will. Because he has proven himself faithful. And, and though, though God has, God has the, the right to do as he sees fit, he's God. And if there's things about that, that, that I don't understand or get, man, I just have to embrace and ask God for understanding. Um, but, but what I believe about his character, what I know about his love. So this is, this is the, the final, I found this in a piece and I'll close with this in the commentary. It says this. We must be careful not to think of this hatred as identical to the emotion that we ordinarily call by that name. There is a Hebrew idiom. Uh, that word just means a saying or a phrase. Behind this, Jesus told his disciples that they had to hate their families to follow him. Luke fourteen twenty six. That does not mean to literally hate our parents or love them less, but to prefer Jesus over them. So Paul is saying that God chose to put Jacob above Esau, but not because of anything about Jacob was was morally superior because we know Jacob's deceptive ways was morally superior to Esau. The only reason that Jacob received the promise was because God's gracious choice. And that's it. And that's it. And the reason we are saved is for the same is because of God's gracious, gracious choice. We respond to that. I believe I, I believe, I mean, what's the works of God? The works of God is this, that we believe. But we, we would have nothing to believe in if it wasn't for what God has done for us in Christ. God has done it all. And we get the privilege of responding to his grace. So as I mentioned earlier, as we wrap up, let's remember that God is extending, as it says in verses 15 and 16, that God is extending his compassion 
and mercy. And without him lifting the veil of, of uh, we, we will never see it. We will never understand. So it is God who calls. It is God who, who, who reveals himself to us. And, uh, and by his grace and for his glory, we respond to this incredible act of mercy. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for these texts that are so difficult to um, apply and to appreciate. But we are so dependent on you for understanding. Father, let us help us to let you out of the box. Help us to, to quit trying to form you in our own image. Help us to stop trying to, uh, to make you fit into our context. But, Father, blow our minds by the, the, the overwhelming wonder of who you are and how magnificent you are, and that you don't think the way we think, and you don't act with that. And we can't, put, we can't impress our thoughts or attitudes on you. But Father, please impress your thoughts and attitudes on us. Please cause us to repent by changing our thinking so that we think the way you think, that we, that we surrender to your word even when we don't understand or agree. Father, let us, let us see that, that you are holy, that you are good, that you are righteous, that you are glorious, and that whatever you think is is how we want to think. Whatever you declare yourself to be, that we receive and we acknowledge. And you are God, and we we are so honored, so honored to be your children. In Jesus' name, amen.